Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Tim read the passage for us this morning, but I want to begin this way. Have you ever had a question, a theological question, maybe a question about God that you you didn't know the answer to? And I would say yes uh, about a, a hundred times over. Maybe one, though, that bothered you. Maybe one that, that you just couldn't reconcile in your mind. Maybe one that, that challenged you. Challenged the way that you thought. Challenged the way that you lived. Challenged even your, your concept of God. What you, what you thought about, about the Lord. I, I have had those, those moments as well. Some of those answers I've concluded from Scripture that I won't understand until I get to heaven, if even then, because my ways are not His ways, His ways are not my ways, they're much higher. Um, well, there's a right way and a wrong way to ask those kinds of questions. And the way that you approach those questions will reveal a lot about you, not about the answer. It will reveal a lot about your heart, and not so much about God. And today, Jesus encounters a group of men who don't believe in the resurrection. And they don't believe in the power of God. And um, God being the one who promised to make the resurrection happen. And so they ask a public question in an attempt to discredit both. Discredit the power of God and discredit uh, Jesus Himself, who is the living Word. And the Lord answers the question and He reveals the real problem and also the key to, to all knowledge. We're right in the middle of the Passion Week and we're in the heart of this, this, this day of confrontation that Jesus has with, with the religious leaders and the temple system. You'll recall that Jesus comes in in the triumphal entry and He enters the temple, He inspects the temple mount, He leaves, He comes back Monday and He cleanses the temple. He tacks it and He cleanses it of its corruption where the temple rulers were, were using it, using God's system to make money. And uh, Jesus even hangs around prohibiting the, the merchandisers to, to return. On Tuesday, he comes back and begins to preach the gospel. He begins to teach. And that's where the confrontation with the rulers begin. They begin by trying to discredit the credentials that Jesus has. They ask him a question. By what authority are you doing these things? Are you teaching these things? And so they begin by starting to try to discredit his credentials. And when that doesn't work, they try to catch him in a theological quandary. And they do that by asking three seemingly unanswerable questions. And we are on question number two in our passage today. The first question we saw last week was the payment of the poll tax to Caesar. That was in verse 13. The second question was concerning the Leverite marriage uh, and the resurrection. The question's about the resurrection. And the third is a question about what's the greatest commandment. And then after Jesus embarrasses each of the groups, it's the, it's the, the Pharisees and the Herodians last time. This morning it's the Sadducees. After Jesus embarrasses each group, they give up and they could only say, Teacher, you have answered well. 
Jesus then in turn asks them a question. And you find that in verse 35. And his question is, how is it that they, that's the scribes, say that Christ is David's son when David himself calls him Lord? And then he quotes Psalm 110. And if they had a problem with Jesus before, they're just incensed by this time. Because when he quotes Psalm 110 with his question, it's a declaration of his deity. Not only is he the son of David, meaning the Messiah, but he's David's Lord, meaning that he's God. And he doesn't even give them a chance to answer after that. He responds uh, to the crowd and he warns the people about their error. And that's the, the woes. He does that even in their presence. He gives a scathing indictment of the entire religious system. He names the leaders, woe unto you scribes, woe unto you Pharisees. And then he provides an example of their corruption, which is the widow's might. Any system that would abuse a widow like that is a putrid and disgusting system. And then he ends with this prophetic statement. This is at the very end of chapter uh, uh, sorry, the very beginning of chapter 13. Do you see these buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So he ends this confrontation with this, this prophetic declaration of judgment. So he starts with the cursing of the fig tree, teaching the disciples, and he ends with this prophetic statement of exactly what's going to happen. He's inspecting fruit in the temple, and these questions reveal to us there is no fruit, at least in the leaders of Israel. And while this literal, physical dismantling of the temple is going to happen in 70 A.D., the spiritual dismantling of the temple system is happening right now. That's what Jesus is doing. He's tearing down the religious leaders and the spiritual system that was supposed to represent God, but in turn does nothing but represent man. In fact, after 70 A.D., there is no record of the Sadducees. And so there's a literal fulfillment of this. the answer to this question. You'll not find in any historical writings anything about the Sadducees in, in any significant form after 70 A.D. because they are so tied to the religious system. And when the temple leaves, when the temple is destroyed, they're, they're gone. They're off the, the map. And they ask a question of Jesus, and it's about the resurrection. And we're interested in His answer, because it gives a fundamental principle for life. A fundamental principle for life. Jesus teaches us this morning that all error in life, in thinking or in practice, is due to an ignorance of the Scriptures. Did you hear what I just said? All error in life, in, in thinking or in, in doing, being or doing, thinking or the way that you live, is due to an ignorance of the Scriptures and the power of God in your life. And you can trace any error, any harm for a world system, whether it's communism or whatever, any errant philosophy, religious or otherwise, back to a lack of the Bible. And if you lack the Bible, you lack the power of God. They're inextricably linked. You want God's power? Get in the Word of God. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Be filled with the Word of Christ, which is the parallel passage between Ephesians and Colossians. And why would that be? Well, because it's the Creator of the universe's book to us that teaches us 
how to flourish in life. It teaches us where what is wise and what is not. And the group asking the question, the Sadducees, were basically deists. They, they denied the supernatural, they denied the afterlife. Only thing, the only thing that they believed is what could be explained naturally. And you probably know some people like that. You may be somebody like that this morning. If you, uh, you know, prove it to me, I have to see it. It has to be explained scientifically or naturally. And you may have a hard time believing the supernatural events of the scriptures or, or maybe even the afterlife. Maybe in your mind, heaven and hell is, is just something that that's a fairy tale. If you, if so, you are like the Sadducees. They attempted to take the normal happenings in life and then use that as a basis to prove or disprove what they found in the Bible. And that's what they're doing this morning with this concept of Leverite marriage. And they're using it even to ridicule Jesus. And Jesus, in turn, uses the Bible to expose their ignorance of both the Bible and the power of God. He corrects their understanding of the resurrected life. He gives them scriptural grounds for believing in the resurrection. And he shows it's based on God's power alone. And in the end, where he says you are gravely or greatly mistaken, he shows that they lack both. They lack an understanding of the Scriptures and they lack the power of God. Their ignorance of the Scriptures and their unfamiliarity with the power of God is where the problem lied. I would say that summarizes many people in the world today. People reject or even mock life after death or supernatural things, and if they do, it's because they're ignorant of the Bible. They've already determined that those type of things don't exist. And Jesus says that if that's the case, they're spiritually ignorant. Now, they present themselves as very wise, very intelligent people. In fact, in worldly circles... The more that you deny the, uh, the Bible or supernatural things, the, the, the more educated that you, you seem to be. But Jesus says, if you do that, you are spiritually ignorant and you have no power, no power of God in your life. And many people live asking, live asking questions about life and death. And they never turn to the source in order to be educated about it. I can remember telling a relative one time when I was witnessing to them, pleading with them to come to Christ. I said, you spend more time picking out a used car or a new car than you do trying to research whether the Bible is true and whether you're going to heaven or hell. Adrian Rogers said, many men will spend more time learning how to whistle than they will trying to figure out whether they know God or not. How much time do you spend in life researching and understanding things that are going to perish with you when you don't even know whether you're right with God. Jesus says that's exactly what the, the Sadducees were like. And he teaches us this morning in this question the cause of spiritual ignorance. Where does it come from? Well, there's only three parts. There's a descriptive introduction. Purposeful, it's in all of the Gospels, I'll show you. It's in verses 18 and 19a. Then there's this outlandish question that they asked Jesus. In verses 19b through 23, and then there's this obvious reply in verses 24 through 27. And let's look at this descriptive introduction. There's a purposefully descriptive 
introduction in all of the Gospels, and Mark includes it. Look, if you will, in verse 18. He says, some Sadducees, tells us who the group is, who say there is no resurrection. He tells us what they believe. They don't believe in the resurrection. And he tells us they come to Jesus and began questioning Him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us. And he tells us right up front, they only believe what Moses wrote. He tells us their name, what they believe, and their authority, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The Sadducees, this individuals, this group of individuals, these representatives that were questioning Jesus, were at the heart of the of the temple rule. They were very influential. They were very wealthy. They were the the leading Jews of the temple. The, all of the high priests came from the Sadducees. The chief priests came from the, the Sadducees. And most of the Sanhedrin came from the Sadducees. It's probably very like our world today. As long as you have an echo of God, it's okay in politics today if you want to mention God, but you don't want to be too radical and actually believe the Bible because then you'll never get elected, right? Well, the Sadducees were similar. They believed in God, but they weren't too radical. So all of the leadership comes from the Sadducees and they control all of the money and they're very influential. All of the gospel writers record their beliefs, that they don't believe in the resurrection. So that's significant. And the Sadducees had two very distinctive parts to their theology. This was one of them. They didn't believe in a resurrection, and they only believed part of the Old Testament. And you can see that in verse 19. Teacher Moses wrote for us. Now, if you were there in that day, you would have known exactly what the Sadducees were saying. They're appealing to the first five books of the Bible only when they say Moses wrote. So they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they only believed in part of the Old Testament. Only part of the Old Testament was authoritative. They're like red-letter Christians today. Have you ever met one of those? They only believe the, the words in, in red. They pick and choose what they want to believe. I had a woman tell me one time whenever... We were in a, in a very sincere and compassionate discussion about her calling in life. She believed that God had called her to preach. This has been many years ago. And I'd been working with her for, for quite some time, helping her see what the Scriptures actually taught. And it came down to this moment where we opened the Bible in 1 Timothy that specifically says that a woman is not permitted to, to preach, to be in an authoritative eldership or teaching position in the church over men. And I showed her that passage, and she says, well, that's what Paul says. I only believe what God says. Besides, people have many interpretations. You have probably heard that before, right? When you bring somebody to a very definitive point in the Bible that's clear. It's crystal clear. I mean, you, you can try to twist it in any way you want to, but it's very black and white. And people will say, well, the people have many interpretations of the Bible. She saw the Bible like the, the famed elephant story. You've probably heard it before. We're blind men who have never seen an elephant before stumble on one, and they're, they're trying to figure out what it is. And one of them grabs a hold of its leg... And, and they say, well, this must be a trunk 
uh, or must be a tree, and another one grabs a hold of its trunk and says, "Well, it must be a uh, you know a a rope," and and then somebody else, one of the other ones, grabs a hold of its of its ear and says, "Well, it must be a fan," and they say, "Well, that's the way religion is." We're all limited, and so we have different interpretations of God, and everybody experiences God in his own way, and that's all right. That's the prevailing thought. Kevin DeYoung said there's only one major problem with this illustration. The elephant spoke, (laughs) and the elephant told us who he is and who you are, and it's in the Bible. That's the problem. The problem is not interpretations. The problem is you fail to believe the very words of the elephant. He tells us who he is and what he's like, and he commands us to seek truth in his word. It's his revelation. And so they tell us very clearly that they don't believe in the resurrection. And look at what they quote in verse 18. Moses wrote for us that if a man... If a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry a wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, in my Bible, that's that's in in capital letters. It's a quote. They base their beliefs solely on the first five books of the Bible. They rejected the prophets and the writings. They limited the Scriptures only to this portion. Now, that's the Sadducees. And the Pharisees have the opposite problem, don't they? The Bible wasn't enough for them, and there are people like that in the world. There are certain people that want to cut the Bible down only to what they want to limit the authority of Scriptures, and then there are people in the other extremes that the Bible's not enough. They need extra spiritual revelations and visions and foaming at the mouth and running around the church and seeing dreams and getting downloads and all of these other things. Jesus is telling them what socks to wear. He's telling them what jobs to take. He's doing all of those kinds of things. The Bible is not enough. And the Pharisees give us that example. Don't ever think that what you believe is just head knowledge or it doesn't matter. What you believe is the basis of your life. Show me what a person does and I will show you what they believe and vice versa. People that don't believe in God or hell, their life will will show it. And because the Sadducees didn't believe in a literal resurrection, their life revealed it. They were greedy. They were power hungry. They grabbed all they could get in this life. And they confront Jesus. And they're not happy with Him for breaking up their system. What does your life reveal? What does it say that you really believe? I understand what you say you believe. But what does your life say? What does the fruit that comes out of your life reveal? Do you really base your life on the Bible or only on the part that you agree with? Have you ever even thought about that? Have you ever thought about what your life says about what you say you believe? Because the Bible links those two and says they cannot be separated. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we're not a carnal Christian, we lie and do not the truth. And yet, that in that very same book, it says that if we do sin, even as believers, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The Sadducees 
didn't take too kindly to Jesus tearing up their system, so they want to discredit him. So they ask him this hypothetical question. So there's a very descriptive introduction that reveals the type of people that Jesus is dealing with. And then there's this outlandish hypothetical question. You ever met guys like this? You know, I've used the example before, you know, what about the pygmies in Africa? I mean, what about, what happens if a Jewish person bumped into a lobster and a dead guy at the same time and then went to the temple, would God be able to forgive him? I mean, just some crazy idea that has nothing to do with where you stand with God. It's just an attempt to get around things. And here is a similar question, but this one is very crafted. Verse 19, they come to Jesus. They address Him as teacher. Teacher, Moses wrote for us. It's another attempt to flatter. And then they ask Him a very well-thought-out question meant to discredit Him and also what He teaches. They were well aware that Jesus believed in the resurrection. They were well aware that Jesus believed in all of the Bible, not just the Pentateuch. Everyone. Remember what time this is. This is the last week of Jesus' life. This is when all of the pilgrims have come to Jerusalem for Passover, and everyone is excited. Jesus enters as the the Son of David. Everybody is aware of this great miracle that He's done. And what was that? The raising of Lazarus. And they also know, even more significantly, what Jesus said before He raised Him. Do you remember what that what Jesus said? Jesus didn't just believe in the resurrection. What did He say? I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in Me, though He were dead, yet shall He live. And so they, Jesus didn't be, just believe in the resurrection. He claimed to be the basis of the, of the resurrection. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, you, you're surely going to be upset with Jesus. And if He's turned over your earthly system, you're going to even be more angry. And I would say if you want to live after this life, you must believe both in the resurrection and that Jesus is the basis for the resurrection. And they didn't, so they purposely try to make the Lord look foolish using the very doctrine that He hates and the very basis of, the, of, of, of who Jesus claimed to be. He's the resurrection. So the hypothetical question is based on Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 6. And Tim read it for us in verse 19. If a brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother as an heir. Then there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children. The third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection, which they didn't believe in. When they rise again, which one's wife will she be? So there's the hypothetical question. And it was about Leverite marriage. And it was a practice that was commanded by Moses in Deuteronomy 25. And it was to preserve the tribes of Israel and the inheritance of a family. Since a man's heir inherited his possessions and his land, not his wife, a wife without a child was vulnerable. And so Moses commands this kinsman to, to redeem 
the, the dead man's property. It's a kinsman redeemer. Marry the widow and then claim it. And Ruth and Boaz, as you know, is the famous example of this practice. Who, by the way, from Ruth and Boaz came the Lord Jesus, who's answering this question today. The Sadducees try to use it to show Jesus' belief in the resurrection is wrong. And they want to use the Bible. They could have just said, a husband died, and because the husband died, then the wife was permitted to remarry, and then she remarried, and in the resurrection, which wife is, is who, who gets the woman? They could have said that, because that would have worked. But they don't. They use these seven brothers without children, and they use Leverite marriage because it's a command. It's not a permission. You're permitted to remarry after your husband dies. But here's a command that was given. So they use a passage that's a specific command. And they purposely say, the last brother dies without children. So no one has special claim on the woman. And the point is, since Moses commanded Leverite marriage, and since the re- in the resurrected state, the woman cannot be a wife to seven different men at the same time, this is proof that Moses denies the doctrine of the resurrection in the Torah. I mean, that, that's their argument. Because if there is a resurrection, then this woman would be guilty of incestuous marriage seven times. And they're probably snickering whenever they ask the question. They're aiming, the whole notion of the resurrection is absurd. And they're using this passage in the Bible to prove it. And many people in the world do that very thing. You will get people who will question the Bible not to understand it, but they're but trying to prove it's wrong. And they'll, they'll couch it in sincerity as if they're really searching, but it's a diversion. And they know exactly what's required of them, and they just simply don't want to do it. Listen, God never turns away sincere, humble questions. But you'll find the answer one way and in one place. A broken and contrite spirit in looking to the Bible. If you have an answer that you need from God, you're only going to get it one way and in one place. You will approach God humbly, not arrogantly. Not in an accusatory fashion. You will approach Him with a broken and contrite spirit. And I would say that's where the majority of times I fail and probably where you come up short. You do not approach God in a broken or contrite spirit. And in fact, if you're like me, you avoid the process even to get there, don't you? Because in order to be humbled, sometimes God has to humble us. And I don't like to be humbled (laughs) because it's painful. And I also like being in control. You want an answer, you'll come with a broken and contrite spirit. Isn't that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? In the, in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who mourn. What's he, what are you mourning over? What does that mean? It's a broken and contrite spirit. It's an acknowledgement that you are God and that I am not And I'm coming to you, and if you want to answer the question, you can answer the question. And if you don't, you're good, you're God. I don't know, you do, and and, and I'm going to leave it there. If you choose to leave it there, you come with that attitude, and then you look in one place. You don't look at the philosophers. You don't look in your own heart. How ridiculous is that? Look deep within yourself. I mean, have you ever thought about how stupid that is? What is within you? 
Everything that you don't want an answer to, you're going to find it in one place. And that's a, a serious inquiry of the Bible. The beginning of the wisdom, beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And the Sadducees' question presupposes that the resurrection life, the resurrected life is an exact counterpart to the earthly life. And they limited God's power and what they know. And Jesus corrected both. And then He rebukes them in this obvious expositional reply. I want you to notice that in all of these cases where Jesus deals with people, He takes them back to the Scripture and He gives the, the, the right interpretation of the passage. Look at you at verse 24. They ask the question and Jesus doesn't blink. He says to them, Is this not the reason that you err or that you're mistaken? That you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? He says, Is this not the reason that you're wandering about? The word's like a planet, and, and the word comes from the idea that a planet looks like it's in space, kind of suspended, wandering about. And his answer shows where the real problem lies. Your heart, in my heart, in the Sadducees' heart, and then he proves it by an exposition of the Bible. His answer has two parts. Your problem, the Scriptures and the power of God, and you, you don't know either. And you don't ever want God to say that about you. And if you're saved, God should not have to say that about you. He says they're wandering and being led astray because they don't know God's power. They think the resurrected life would basically be no different from this life. This life. That's what he's saying. It's basically no different from this life. Now, what's your idea of heaven? What does heaven look like? White, fluffy clouds with uh, angels sitting on plucking harps? I hope not. They limited heaven to earthly ideas. When I was growing up, there was a movie, horrible, of George Burns. You remember that little old short old guy that used to smoke the big cigar and he was God and the devil and, and all of these concepts that the movies give of, of, of heaven and hell. They limited heaven to earthly ideas because they never experienced the touch of heaven here. And Jesus says the resurrected life is very different. Very different from this life. And you should be glad that it's very different from this life. And he uses the illustration of marriage to show how. He says, when they rise from the dead, look at verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. But they're like the angels in heaven. Jesus says the resurrection is not absurd. The fact that you claim you believe the Bible and don't believe in the resurrection is. And he uses the angels as a, as a double smackdown, if you will because they denied their existence. Jesus says men will rise and they'll exist just like the angels that you don't believe in. He's not saying that you're going to become like an angel. But you'll have a resurrected, you'll have a new resurrected body and the new resurrected life will be more like the way the angels exist than the way that you and I exist on the earth. This is the argument that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians 15. 
How are the dead raised and what kind of body do they come from? And Paul says, you foolish person. I mean, he basically says what Jesus says here. You err. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And he says, when it comes back to life, God gives it a body as He chooses. And his point is, don't you think if God could create the world and the body that you have now, don't you think He's able to create a new kind of body fit for heaven? Of course He is. And that's why Paul calls them foolish. And he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And there's going to be a significant change to to the resurrected life, and it'll be significant. What'll be sown is perishable, what's raised imperishable. What's sown is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. What's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. What's sown a natural body is raised in spiritual body. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21 says, The body that you and I will receive will be like the Lord's. And Paul ends his argument in 1 Corinthians 15 with this definitive statement. There is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Or you could say a resurrected body. Just as there is a natural body, you can be just as assured there's going to be a resurrected body. And that life is going to be very different from life on, on earth. And their argument exposes that they don't understand that. And marriage is until death do us part. Think about it. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that there are certain things that God's created for the earth. And since there is no death, there will be no reason to reproduce. And so marriage is necessary on the earth to fill the earth, because that's the command. And since we're reunited with God, all the saints, and all the saints, there will be no need for special companionship. We'll all be in perfect fellowship. And since we'll be perfect, there'll be no need to complete one another. And since Christ will be with His bride, there'll be no need for the shadow which marriage reflects. Marriage, the family, sex, and many other things were created by God for the earth. And they're taking that and using that as something to evaluate the resurrected life. It's one of the ways that you can tell a false religion. It makes God out to be like a man, and it makes heaven out to be like glorified ideas of the earth, like 70 virgins, green pillows, and those kind of things in Islam. And Jesus says, if you knew the Bible, you would understand these things. So they deny the power of God and He corrects them. And then He points them to the Bible. Look at verse 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise, have you not read in the book of Moses? (laughs) It's a rebuke. You know the book that you claim is authoritative? The only book that you claim is authoritative? Have you not read? Well, in that book, in the most significant of all passages that a Jew would remember, right? The, re- the, the burning bush. I mean, if, if you're a Jew, that's a pretty significant passage, isn't it? The book of Moses, when God speaks and He reveals His covenant name. In that book, in the most significant of all passages, the resurrection is taught. The burning bush where God reveals His covenant name is where God appeared to Moses, known by every Jew, and Jesus reveals their ignorance by showing that the same Moses in the Torah records God declaring the resurrection. And He says in that passage about the burning bush, 
Have you not read how God spoke to him? That's Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and I am the God of Jacob. How does he reveal himself is what Jesus is saying. Was Abraham alive whenever God said this to Moses? No. And yet God says he is their God. He's still in covenant with them. The very basis of the covenant teaches the resurrection. He's not the God of corpses, literally. He says he's not the, he is not the God of the dead. He's not the God of corpses, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. The Bible teaches that God does not cease to be God upon someone's physical death. And if God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, hundreds of years after the three patriarchs died, then they must be alive to Him. In fact, all are alive to Him. And there's a resurrection unto life, and there's a resurrection unto death. But there is a resurrection. And He is the God over, over all. He's Lord over all. He's the eternal God of the covenant. The fact stressed over and over by the patriarchs. And God will raise the dead because He cannot fail to keep His promises to be their God. And so right there in the most obvious place in the burning bush was the evidence of the resurrection. Right under their nose. I am, they are. Of course, Jesus could have proven that from the prophets, many other places, very clearly taught in Isaiah, very clearly taught in Ezekiel. Ezekiel was taken up into heaven. He didn't even die. Jesus uses the Torah. Isaiah 26, verse 19, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You will lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Daniel, chapter 12, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He tells them that their thinking about life and death reveals they don't know what God promised or His power. God is the God of the living, not the dead, at least those that know Him. And the resurrection is a new way of living, not an extension of the old one. He tells them that God reigns over all before and after death. And if you're misinformed about this life or about the life that is to come, it's because of spiritual ignorance. You don't know the Scriptures and you haven't experienced the power of God unless you know the Scriptures. That's where the power of God comes from. The more you know about God, the greater the capacity that you have to worship Him, to ascribe worth to Him the more of His promises that you, that you lay hold of, that you believe, the more power that you experience. Because power is not... God's not some force who's just zapping you with things. His power is directly related to His promises. God promised, and so you are fully persuaded that what God promised, He's able to deliver. There's the power. The power is directly related to the promises. God has promised specific things. He's not promised whatever you want or whatever I want. They're specific things, and they're good things. 
And if you want to experience that power, then you have to know His Word. And you won't know His Word, and you can't know His Word unless you come to Him first, because the natural man doesn't understand the things of God. And the only way that you can come is by that broken and contrite spirit. You will not come to Christ until you see your need. You will not come to Christ in your pride. You must come the way of the cross. And Jesus tells them, death doesn't release you from God, it brings you face to face with Him. And for those that know Him, He's gracious and kind and loving. And those that do not, He's a consuming fire. When you stand before God, with all of the evidences of His power and all the access that you and I have to the Bible, what will you say to His question? Why did you not believe upon my son? You think it's going to be, well, I really just couldn't, didn't understand this virgin birth thing. If I could have just intellectually understood that, I would have believed. You think that's going to be sufficient? Why did you live your life with such little care toward my word? How will you answer that question? Won't you bow your heads? We're going to sing in just a moment. There's a prayer room over here. Um, You need somebody to pray with you. I just want to repeat to you again. If there's something troubling you, if there's a question that you can't answer, God is not angry with you because you have a question. He's not frustrated because you don't have the answer or that, or that, that you may even get frustrated because you don't have the answer. What God is against is an arrogant and proud heart that won't come to Him for the answer. So come with your questions. Come to the Bible. The Lord will meet you there. He gives grace to the humble. It may not be in your timing, it may be in His. The ones that the Lord rejects are the people like the Sadducees. And I pray you're not one of them.